Good morning. I am Melissa Hunter Davis with Sugar Cane Magazine, and this is This Week in Caribbean Art and Culture. And I am joined by my lovely hosts, starting with Maria. Hi, everyone. This is my artist creator at the Press Agency in Miami. And Susie. Hi, everybody. Suzanne Fredericks here, Susie Wong Presents, Jamaica, located in Jamaica. Maria, this past weekend, the Pettis Art Museum Miami held its annual Black Art Fun Gala. We always look forward to that. Tell us, how did it go? Oh, it was amazing. It was, it was amazing. Like it was, I mean, a lot of people were there, um, a lot of people. And um, we raised, I think, over $800,000 for the endowment of um, Black Art. And, and it was just fantastic. You know, the dinner part was sold out very early on. Yes. And um, and just it was it was just a great night. Oh, overall, we acquired two works. One was Dawood Bay, and then we also acquired a painting by Kalida Rawls, and um, and we had those on view. Oh, nice! So people could appreciate the work, and it was just like a really um, uh, you know great event. I think that this Art and Soul event is becoming, or is really the the big celebration of black excellence in Miami during Black history month. So it's certainly, you know, a lot of it, of course, about the art and how we're um, building this, this collection, but, but, but another half of it is just celebrating black excellence in Miami. So people from all over the country come to, um, to celebrate here in the city. Yes. I love it. I'm really proud of the accomplishment. Um, it was great. I got to the after party later. Um, so I know the dinner must have been fantastic. So, but I had a good time at the after party. So fun story. One of our advertisers had an event the exact same night. And I had to go to that event to be there. And of course, that was really great too, <clears throat> because um, it was a classical music program of uh, music by Black classical composers, which you don't often get to see, especially not in South Florida. You don't get a chance to hear that at all. So it was really important. If you grew up in you know, certain cities, like Chicago was one of those cities, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra has always um, been big on playing works by classical Black classical composers, but I've not seen that happen in other places. And sometimes it happens even outside of Black History Month. It's just a part of the regular programs. And it seems as if the New World Symphony, our advertiser, is um, starting to do that now. They have a show coming up in April, April with a composer by the name of Primus Fountain. I am really excited to see that, um, that program. But they did something really great Saturday night as well. So I had to be there. But and I wasn't the only one because when I got to Pam, I saw other folks from the audience of the New World Symphony. They did the exact same thing. They showed up at Pam right after. So I, I heard that. Yeah. And I actually there were some of our board members. They um like um they they serve in both places. So yes. um they would kind of come they some of them would just come in for this one and stay and split up. And you know, it's for me. Like I've been working with them back the Battle for Black Art since the group started. And just to give, you know, a some background to our listeners, uh, when the Paris Art Museum opened in 2013, 
Jorge Paris and the Net Foundation, they gift the museum a million dollars to purchase work of Black artists. And a lot of it was not only the recognition, the importance of Black art in collections, but another one was this idea that to make sure that people knew that this museum was for everybody in the city. Because at the beginning, and I wasn't here during those years, but there was a lot of anxiety locally about what it meant to have a museum having a Latin last name which, you know, I'm sure that nobody felt, oh, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there, but I wonder if there was the same anxiety with the Whitney family and the Guggenheim family, you know, all these wealthy um, kind of uh, iconic white American families when they named their museums, right? Um, but for some reason, for the Latin museum, there was. And wow. in Jorge Perez at night, they really, you know, wanted to, from the beginning, make that clear there's a museum for everyone in the city and as part of that we need to have this great black collection because that's a big part of our city and our history so um and the group really started with that sentiment and then other individuals started to get involved and really take the 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 leadership not only of that uh money that you know we the curators we purchase art for it but then also what would it mean to build a community around it and that's when the ambassadors were formed and i have to say that in the last um what is it seven years seven eight years that this group has existed the transformation from that gift to then just some community leaders saying let's build a community off of this uh project and then to what has become today it's just been um uh, it's just been wonderful it's just been, been wonderful to see and i think that certainly you know franklin's leadership as an african-american director is very important for that to to grow and to people have confidence that this is uh yeah. for real and building that community around it right. uh, so it's just as a as a as somebody that's been working with the group and seeing its development it's just been wonderful to see and I'm happy that you mentioned that because I remember back in, it was the early 2000s. I'm not sure if when Pam was ma'am, if they did a great job making the museum a place for everyone. And it's just because you have to learn how to deal with communities that you don't have any experience with. And I think at the time they probably had a staff that didn't have experience dealing with, you know, black communities um, or knowing, even though I know that they had, black, do they have black? They definitely have black yes, donors. yes, they yes. Black no, donors. they have board, like Tony Randall. She has been one of the right. you know kind of. No, they they have. I think that um, I think that we're also living. It's a lot of it's context. I, I think because I think that right now we're living in this moment where there's a lot of focus on uh, black production. So I think that now and and we're being checked more, you know, and and who your staff is and and all that stuff. So it's, there's more awareness. So I, I do think that Ma'am would, do, I mean, they hosted Rachie Johnson first um, um, solo show that came from the MCA Chicago. They also did one of the first works that was purchased by donors into the museum was a work by Lorna Simpson. So the museum, and then and then when you add the Afro-Latino like Tomas Esson and so on. So I do think that the consciousness has been there, you know, staff that's like another conversation but or or not staff is not a conversation what i'm trying to say really is that um like other museums diversifying uh museum staff is is always a struggle um and it's always uh, a challenge um and that is very complex 
because, you know, museum salaries, who can afford to actually work in a museum, you know, there's like a lot of stuff around that time, around that conversation. But I think that, the, that MAM has always been, uh, especially because of the history of the museum, like it was a museum that people voted for in the city. So it's always had that kind of um, community component. Now, there's a difference between having that outward facing approach versus having the collections and the money, you know what I mean? So I think that now the now a lot of the emphasis has been in, okay, we've done a lot of great shows for, for um, Black artists um, from all over the world, but now we need to build a collection and put the money where it's at. Because ultimately, you know, all these waves of identity, you know, they've been with us since, what, the 60s? And they come and go, and research has shown that often there's a big gap between um, doing exhibitions that, uh, for example, with Caribbean art, doing a bunch of exhibitions of Caribbean art, but not collecting Caribbean art. And that's where the issues really um, happen, because then there's no legacy being built for the, for the institutions. Right. Thank you for that context. I think that was really important. And I'm happy that, you know, that the fund is building. When I saw that number 900,000, I was like, what? I remember the early days. So they've done really well. You know, Pam has collected amazing pieces. And of course, that that party is every year. Like, I feel like that's our, um, and I hate using that, but I have to say, it's almost like our Met Gala once a year, you know? Like, that's our it our is. party. It is. Our there's nothing else like it in this in the town, in the city. Nothing. There's nothing, no. and people love Miami, and they always want an excuse to come here. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, yeah. So it turned out really well. Really proud of that. Um, how was your weekend? Other than that, Susie, what did you do? Um, this weekend, I went to see. There was um, there's been a nice kind of uh, steady flow of contemporary shows here in Kingston. Um, so at a creative space in Ligony. Um, we had a new exhibition open, a dance hall exhibition, Kiao Stall, it's called, curated by Black Mango with um, a diverse range of artists, you know, from traditional kind of representational painting through to graphic design and kind of visual. Um, interesting ways of translating what is dance or the music, musical culture visually, you know, both through the more pop art element as well as, and there's a, there's a very cool motorbike that's been constructed and it, and it, it here in Jamaica, Yang Yang is a symbol of, um, from back into, from the film, How Do They Come? The Yang Yang has become a symbol of um, economic power. So there's a yang yang there that's been constructed that has its own sound system on it and what you'd expect to see around Kingston, you know, um, in a really interesting way. So that, that was really refreshing to see. It's really difficult to translate um, musical culture into a visual culture as an exhibition. So it really worked. And um, apart from that, did the beach and that was it. <laughs> I love it. So I'm sure that it's much warmer in Kingston than it is here in South Florida. It's like in the 50s today, I think. Well, we have a chill. We have what we call the Christmas breeze, which goes on through to March. And people are complaining that they have to use a blanket at night. And I'm loving it. It's a refreshing change. Uh, yeah, so I love it. It's so. lovely. But I imagine Florida is pretty cold. 
no, I love it. I get tired of, you know, sweating and the humidity and my hair mm-hmm. and all the issues <laughs> you go through living in the tropics. I love it when it like it cools off a little bit. I can put on a sweatshirt and I can watch all the Floridians complain. I'm like, this is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up when it was zero and we couldn't go to school because it was too cold. I miss those days. But I understand I can, now. I can imagine that. Yes. But the Midwesterners now have, everybody has Wi-Fi. So now, even if you don't go to school, you have class online. So you don't get out of anything (laughs) (laughs) like we did in the old days. So let's talk about what I found in the news this week. So there were two stories that I found in Art News that I thought would be part of some really great conversation. And Maria, I think that this is kind of up your alley because you worked in Mexico City. Um, yeah, for, for yeah, it was actually, well, what's this, it's about Sonamaco, right? Yes. So what what was the story before I read? Oh, it was actually, <laughs> no, it was actually just about, well, there were, were two things and I'm going to open this up. So of course it's going on this, this week, it opens today. Yeah. So it's, it's nine o'clock here. It's nine, eight, seven. It's seven a.m. Seven or six a.m. in Mexico City right now. So they are probably getting ready to open. And um, so the story is, is that you know, of course, this is a really great fair, but also there seems to be um, a real pivot to look at the galleries in Mexico City as well. There's lots of great shows. So for people who are not familiar with Zona Mako, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, so Sona Mako is the contemporary art fair or the most renowned contemporary art fair in Mexico City. And there's others. I mean, there's also um, the material, which is really nice. And, and that started, um, um, I think, like, I mean, like five, four years ago. But basically, you know, on this time, there's a lot, like similar to our Basel, there is um, art fairs and great exhibition, great museum shows for you to see and experience Mexico City. I would also mention that now another cool thing that's happening during this time is that Guadalajara has also a really nice, um, cool art scene. And what people do is that they go at the beginning of the week to Guadalajara and then by the end of the week to Mexico City. Because if you ever go to Mexico, if you haven't been going, if you ha- and if you are thinking about going, one of the best things to do when you go to Mexico is to go to DF, the, the Mexico City, right? Which is like a city of 20 million people, bigger than New York City. And then also visit another town, and in this case, um, Guadalajara, which has a great art scene and art spaces. Now, they, similar to the fairs here, they have sections. And one of the section is actually curated by Dideria Lasso. She's a friend and colleague. She's actually from Cuba and she lives here in Miami. So um, she's certainly very um, attuned with um, Caribbean artists and projects from, you know, not only Miami, but other parts of the Caribbean, of course, um, Havana and so on. So that's always really neat. Um, and yeah, there's a lot of great places to go and see in Mexico City in terms of museums. There's a museum that I used to work at, San Arte Bolico Siqueiros. There's also the MUAC, the Museum of Contemporary Art of the University of the Autono- uh, Universidad Autónoma de México. There's also a Museo Rufino Tamayo. There's also a Museo del Chopo. There's also the Collection Humex, which is another great place to see. I mean, there's, and then there's a lot, a great gallery scene 
like Kuriban Sutoga, Yalabora. I mean, it, the list goes on and on and on. But it's a great place to, for anybody that's interested in Latin American art to certainly go. And it certainly, you know, has like an international um, approach from galleries from all over. So you, you mentioned that it's a city of 20 million people. So I'm sure that there's quite a few galleries because of that. And do galleries do well there? Do they have a short shelf life or can you have a, a legacy gallery in that city? Yeah, I mean, galleries do well there and the fair is not overwhelmed. Like it's not, I think that Basel here in Miami is bigger. It's not huge with a capital H. You can certainly do it in a day and galleries do well and galleries um, from all over uh, go there. So it's not just um, Latin America, like Latin America, but also from Zurich, from Italy, Gagosian is there, you know, and that's a big, you know, big uh, gallery. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a big, there's a big collector class in Mexico and in Latin America that, you know, go, and from Europe as well, that they, um, you know, going to Sonamaco and from the U.S. I, I have, I know a lot of collectors that also travel uh, to Sonamaco. So there's, it's, it's a great uh, meeting ground of, of cultural exchange. And for artists who show their work there, because I saw some of, at least some of the artists who are showing in some of the galleries, and it seems to be pretty diverse. But is this, do you go there specifically if you're looking for Latin American art or is there really like a wide range of work that you can look at and purchase? There is certain, there's a wide range, but I do think that if you're, if you are interested in Latin American art, that's a place to go. But there's a wide, you know, like I said, there's people, you know, from like Paris, London and so on. But I do think that if you want to Latin America, if, if that's your focus, you should go to Sonamaco, okay. you know? The same way that if if your focus is American art, you should probably come to our Basel, Miami, you know. Um, so, yeah, but there's always there's so, something for everybody because, you know, um, the art trends are also global trends. So and the fairs are very astute or to show that in their in their displays. And did you hear about any artists or any work that we should see if we're traveling there or have a, a friend or collector who will be in town? Well, certainly Guadalajara. I mean, I know a lot of people are certainly um, uh, like um, went to Guadalajara before going to the fair. And I think that already passed. Okay. But um, I would certainly visit the his section that, you know, Lea Lasso is, is curating, because I think there you're gonna find a good mix of you know Latin American, European, and also Caribbean. Um, and just enjoy the fair. And also, most importantly, enjoy the great food. You know, <laughs> go to Contramar <laughs> and get your amazing atun tostadas. Like, just eat, eat your life away while you're there. <laughs> That's what I would do. Favorite restaurant in, Mex in Mexico City? Pujol, oh my God, it's amazing. And Contramar, those okay. are the two that to me are like, and, and there's a lot more. Like there's, I mean, there's a lot. Like it's, it's, it's never, like it's, I mean, my water is, wa my mouth is watering 
as I as I. But you know, this month is a big fair month because there is also um, freeze in LA yes. and as yeah. well as Arco in Madrid. So so yeah, it's, it's busy. Yes. And I think it's, is it Knowledge Bennett who has a show in a, a solo show in in LA during freeze? We'll come back to that because I believe so. I believe he does. So we'll come back to that one. So also um, there was a great story about Nari Ward's Hearst installation. So I saw this um, at New Museum in May. I think I've talked about grief and grievance. That was one of my favorite um, museum shows of 2021. And it was just a great backstory about um, his Hearst installation and kind of the story about how, you know, it, it went from the Whitney and then sat in his brother's, um, the, the backyard of his uh, um, fill-up station for a while. And then it was eventually brought back on um, to new museum and now was um, purchased by the Baltimore Museum of Art. So did anybody get a chance to read that and want to share their thoughts about it? Um, yeah, I read that. I thought it was really interesting that, you know, the work was initially, you know, it was made in 1995. And I thought it was really a sign of the times for a museum to acquire that work as a kind of, um, not just for the power of the work itself, but as a kind of tool to, to challenge the way people may be thinking about identity and um, the place of Black people in America and the history of the challenges they've faced and stuff. So I thought that was really interesting that he had to almost like reconstruct the work because it had been stored for so long. And I think the essential part that remained was the cage, was it not? And he had to get yeah. a new vehicle and kind of remake the work, which I thought was an interesting kind of um, element added to the acquisition and what it might do for the museum. You know, I've thought a lot about what people will say about museums and their collections from this particular time about what, you know, guests will think what um, future art historians and writers and art administrators will think about this particular time um, of us collecting work and the socio-political, you know, moment that we're in and what they would think. And then I also think about, you know, where we are politically, at least here in the United States and probably in other countries as well, because we have, you know, a party that wants to really take the United States back to a very conservative, you know, close to 1950s <clears throat> type of thinking. And so what all of this work will mean, you know, should this change take place, <clears throat> you know, and will this work still be valued and will, um, will boards still value the work that, you know, that was made and collected, you know, just what that thought process will be. And this, this particular story about about the hearse really, you know, tip that off of my brain. Like, you know, how do we go forward with that? But I talked about my experience when I saw this, that I went with, uh, there were, at least at the time that I went, 
there was a lot of collectors who had gone in. They were there for freeze. And I kind of felt like I was being gawked at. It was just a very raw, emotional show for me. And the other guests who were there made me feel like, you know, they were kind of gawking at my pain is how it felt. And so mm-hmm. I thought about that when I, I read this, I was like, you know, I wonder what, you know, what will board members say? You know, what are their thoughts about the collections from this time? You know, and just, you know, what our thinking will be like. And I don't know, because I don't work in a museum, I don't know what, what board members and collectors think when you do collect this work by people of color or you collect work that's very politically charged, especially because a lot of these board members, whether they, you know, admit it out, out loud or not, are typically very conservative anyway. Um, they vote conservatively, they really have conservative values, even though it may not be something that's in vogue right now, they may keep that to themselves. But typically, you know, people who have a couple of dollars to spend and who can sit on these boards, that's kind of their thought process. And so I just wonder, you know, what, what's the thinking now? What's the thinking gonna be in the future with these collections? But I am happy that the Baltimore Museum of Art collected this piece. Um, I think it's an important story for the city, especially for Baltimore and an important mm-hmm. story for the African diaspora. So I'm really pleased. All right, so we have a, a great guest today. We have Peter London. Peter London is a dancer um, who has had the Peter London Dance Company here in South Florida for many years. He also teaches at New World School of the Arts um, and he is from Trinidad and Tobago. So maybe about 2018, 2019, he did a talk here in Miami and I got a chance to learn far more about him than I ever knew. Um, He danced with Jeffrey Holder in his youth, which was a big deal. And he told some really great stories about Trinidad that I'd never heard. I really wanted to do a story about it, but I couldn't find any archival photos. And I spoke to a friend of mine who's from Trinidad and she said that she's not sure if there's any photos that exist from, that would have exist from his childhood in these neighborhoods um, that had um, kind of a focus around African spirituality and there were shrines that went with that spirituality and we can't find any photos. So I couldn't do the story, but I'm always open as soon as I'm made aware that those archival photos exist. But in the meantime, I wanted Peter to be on the show with us today to talk to us about carnival culture and his youth um, dancing in Trinidad and Tobago. So Mr. London, thank you for joining us. I would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your dance company. Okay, um, a little bit about myself. I'm originally from Trinidad and Tobago and from a very young age, since about six years old, I was steeped in the African retention tradition, uh, particularly from the Yoruba people from my family uh, came from Karaku, Grenada. So that is the, a lot of the Yoruba and areas from the Congo and so on and so forth that brought that in. But the religious aspect was the Yoruba um, Orisha uh, ceremonies that I participated in since I was six years old. And then moved on to more of the secular dances in in, um, a community group and then became the director of one of the leading community groups in Trinidad and traveled internationally as a cultural ambassador for the government and then off to the Juilliard School where I graduated in 87 and worked with the Jose Limon Dance Company and Martha Graham Dance Company with Martha Graham and became um, Associate Artistic Director Senior for International Touring. 
uh, during that period, I came here to Miami and uh, started teaching at the New World School of the Arts, where I've been teaching since 1987. And uh, about 10, 11 years ago, I started my own dance company, which was a dream of mine in, to do it in Trinidad. But the way the God set it up, it happened here. And so now we're mm-hmm. celebrating our 11th year. It's a company uh, was inspired here by the kids that I would teach at the African Heritage Cultural Arts Center in Liberty City that will said, we have nothing here in Miami for us. Could you create a company for us, you know, for the black kids? And I said, are you crazy? <laughs> We're going to get the money. There's no support. There's nothing. But eventually they started growing up and I would help them get into positions at the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, Martha Graham, all the, the people that I knew in New York. And they were coming back home and it's like, we want class. I said, well, go take class with the companies here. They said, no, we want to do it with you. <laughs> Yeah, I said, okay, all right, let me try something. And uh, so I started it and got an initial uh, grant from the Knight Foundation. Peter, I love it. So I was just checking the calendar. So Carnival for Trinidad and Tobago starts February 28th. So mm-hmm. this year it seems like Carnival's a little late. I always remember Carnival being like around February. So it's a little late this year. Um, but I, I oh, say it again. I don't think Trinidad Carnival in Trinidad is happening this year. I didn't think it was either, but it's listed as February 28th. Um, I know that it was a conversation about not that foreigners weren't allowed to go for sure. Even if they were having it, you know, we couldn't, if we wanted to go, we couldn't go. Um, okay to the country this year, but it hasn't listed as the 28th and it just, maybe there'll be, you know, private celebrations. Cause I know nobody's going to let this time pass. I know I, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do something, you know, if that was me personally living there, but, um, but that's when, you know, carnival would typically be. So I really want to have this conversation about a carnival culture based on one of your talks at the South Day cultural center when they were celebrating the work of Jeffrey Holder. But I wanted to really kind of talk about carnival culture and the history of carnival culture and the history of dance in that time. Can you give us a little bit of background about it? Okay, so the carnival uh, culture came out from the French would have uh, before Lent, um, they would have the masquerade balls that, that came from Europe. And so they will have all kinds of debauchery and fets. They call it fets in French, F-E-D. And in Martinique, Guadeloupe, and all those, the French territories before they came to Trinidad, because Trinidad was not a slave plantation in the early days. It, it, it only happened 50 years before slavery ended in 1834 in Trinidad. Um, it was Trinidad, port was only used as a place mainly for the ships uh, to come and get the, the the tar to gawk them before they go back out, and also in the cove to hide the ships during the the hurricanes during the uh, the hurricane season. But what happened and how the uh, Africans got in there, uh, the plantations in Martinique and Guadeloupe and and those other places, they weren't producing a lot of. Uh, sugar cane anymore because of the ratoon cane where you chop the cane and it grew up the soil was depleted over so many years also with the abolition of slavery they could not bring in a lot of slaves anymore so um 
that was happening. And so they needed fresh land and they negotiated with the, the British who owned Trinidad at the time, since it changed hands between Spain, France, Britain, back and forth. They brought the slaves in there. And I think the British knew that slavery was going to be abolished soon. So that's why they allowed <laughs> to come in and sell them the land. And, and they brought all the slaves, usually mostly from Martinique and Guadeloupe and, and so on and so forth, the French territories into Trinidad. And But the situation was already in Martinique and Guadeloupe, there was a large portion of freed Africans, of, of free Africans, some of them who were never slaves. And, um, and so there was that petty bourgeois uh, 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 group that came in into Port of Spain and set up shop there and so on and so forth. And within 50 years, slavery was abolished. And that's why they brought in the Indians. That's how the Indians came, the British brought in the Indians as indentured laborers. Partly they were emptying their prisons because of the protests from the Indians that was taking place in places like Calcutta, Calcutta and, and from Madras and so on and so forth into Trinidad to then do the plantations. Um, because when uh, slavery was abolished in 1834, all the Africans just moved off the plantation. <laughs> And that's why when you look at the, the demographics of where the Africans and the Indians live, in Trinidad, the Africans mostly live in the hills because that's where they went after they came off the plantation and refused to work on the plantation. And they set up their own gardens, they set up shops and, and stuff and set up their own little hamlets all throughout the hills. And then the Indians live in the plains where the plantation, they stayed down on the plains with the plantation of the sugar cane. And, um, but anyway, when the French would have their parties, their fets before Lent came on Ash Wednesday, the, the Blacks, the, the Africans, would have their own parties outside, you know, the house, the big houses and the plantations, and they would mimic the French dances of the time, of the 18th century dances, the minuets and the jigs and the sarabans and the courants and so on and so forth, those French dances, and they would add the, their own African style and they will use drums and tambourines and different things to make the music, but they will add in their own, like, especially from the Congo, those who are from the Congo, the, the Igbo people and so on and so forth, who really have a large secular experience, uh, culture of dancing, they mix it up. And, and so they will do all those dances and songs and so on and so forth. And eventually they will create little bands that will go around the plantation and they light something called a cambule, like a stick with fire and go around and have their own little masquerade. Eventually those things became very big. And after slavery was ended, it got into the streets, you know, and in Port of Spain and all in Belmont and, and so on and so forth and become so large that the, the British were very scared of, of all of that and so they, uh, they tried to stop it and block it and block the drums and all that sort of stuff. So the, the Trinidadian Blacks, they said, okay, well, no drums. They started doing, they got bamboo instead and started using bamboo. And then they stopped that. And then they started using bottle and spoon. <laughs> so every time they were blocked with their instrumentation, with them, they found something else uh, to, uh, to come up for their instrumentation. There were fights and riots and stuff, you know, for, to try to block them from having their carnival. 
Oh yeah, there were all kind of rats and they had something called uh uh, can't believe it, the stick fighting, and they can fight with the sticks, you know, the policemen and whoever this and that. They, just like in Brazil, they have some the, that dance, a capoeira, Trinidad, the blacks had their cambule, and women would fight too. Those African women were bad. You didn't play with them, <laughs> beat you. And I remember as a child, there, I don't know, there's a lot, Trinidad had like very tall black women, big, and they can fight, they beat men. They, you cannot play with those big black women in Trinidad. And Tobago. <laughs> they were fierce. But I think a lot of them were part of the Mandingo tribe. There was a large Mandingo, and they were the warriors. Uh, during slavery, when they tried to break, because that's where they'll take the Africans to break them, it took three years to break some from different tribes, but the Mandingos, they took longer, and usually it took about five years to break them before they shipped them off to America and different places. So, um, so that's where the carnival happened, uh, started, developed, and they'll make their own costumes. I remember going to carnival and the juve in the morning, early morning band. You, you just pull anything out of under your bed, wherever, and you put it on and you go for that morning carnival. And then the masquerade happened on Tuesday, uh, on Monday evening and Tuesday afternoon. So that's how the carnival developed. The steel band part of it, you know, like I said, they would play drums and sticks and cow bones and, you know, and you know bamboo call it tambu bamboo and in the war the second world war we they couldn't um no masquerade on the street all that sort of stuff they couldn't have that anymore and then when the war ended people just ran out of their houses and because there was no carnival before that you know during the time and ran out of their houses people pick up old drums on the street which were the oil drums you know, that they use for garbage, dump the garbage out, all that sort mm -hmm. of stuff. And this and that has started playing that, you know, throughout the streets after when when V, v Day came, the, um, when the World War II ended. And then by the next year, people realized the song that those drums were making was fantastic. So they started developing it, you know, like half, cut it in half, cut it in quarter. And over a period of years, that's how the actual steel band, the new instrument of the 21st century came to be part of the carnival. Yeah. You know, you mentioned earlier that you um, kind of mixed together the different traditions from, you know, the cultures of Miami. And I was wondering, you know, I'm from Puerto Rico, so I'm wondering if there's some aspects of carnival in Puerto Rico that you have incorporated into your um into your works? Well, what I, no, not, not exactly, but what I've cooperated, incorporated in my work is the dances, the actual dance, which is the, in, in Puerto Rico, and I've performed in Puerto Rico, I took my group uh, dances to Puerto Rico from the school and performed there, and I loved it. Yeah, hope Puerto Rico, my God, on Friday oh, wow. night, oh, Lord it's have so mercy. Fun. It yeah. is, I mean, people don't know the, the joie de vivre of that and walking through the streets, the experience, the humanity of it, the, the energy is something that everybody should experience in going to Puerto Rico. So I hope that's a good plug for Puerto Rico, <laughs> um, you know, tourism. You really yeah, should experience although, it. It's fantastic. But yeah. I've had, I have Puerto Rican students and dancers now in my company. And so I, I use the music and I use the retention of African dance from Puerto Rico in, but not the exact carnival itself, but the dances and the movement, you know, the salsa and so on and so forth in my company. And I also have Puerto Rican dancers in my company as well. 
Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for all that rich history. I mean, some of it I didn't know, and I kind of pride myself on knowing quite a lot. <laughs> well, I actually taught at the National School of Dance in Jamaica. I was invited there by um, Sheila Barnett and Barbara Recois under the auspices okay. of the professor. And I taught there at, at the National School. And from there, that's where, you know, but I have seen the National Company in Trinidad with uh, Professor Nettleford dancing Kumina, which is one of the main oh, dancers the incredible. company. I actually saw him dance it myself. Me too, as a child. And, right, that's a phenomenal on stage. Amazing. And I was inspired by that, he and she, uh, Barbara Recois. And so... I went there and, and taught there at the school. They became family. I'm a, like a family member there. And that's why I have that connection with Jamaica and here with um, Eddie Edwards and Bridget Edwards here in that does the, the Jerk Festival that they created that Jerk Festival here, International Jerk Festival. So we work together very closely that they run the Rhythms Marketing uh, Organization and the Jerk Festival. And that's how I ended up bringing the company from Jamaica to perform here. And we were supposed to go there, but of course the pandemic happened. So there's a very strong family relationship with Jamaica, I'm also very close with God Fagan, with the God Fagan Dance Company. And God Fagan mm -hmm. is a supporter of mine and, and a dear friend. And so there's a big connection, Jamaican connection there. Yes, obviously. I went to the School of Dance a couple of the summer, the summer schools. Summer programs, right. That's why I taught. Uh -huh. I love that. In 1984, I love that. 85, I think I did it. Yeah, I was probably there in the mid 90s, but a fantastic program. And yes. I still do great work. Yeah, so, wonderful, so wonderful. Yeah, so when the pandemic is over, so it's part of the plan to come to Jamaica. And I also wanted to ask you, is there anything online that people could kind of see the dance company? It's all there. There's, we have videotapes, there's photos and upcoming events or? or past events. It's that you just go to plgdc.org and you see everything there there's photos and then you can request stuff from me if you wanted more information uh just peterlondon.comcast.net and i'll send you more information yeah. mm -hmm. wonderful thank you you're welcome mr london thank you so much for your time and thank you for that background on carnival that is exactly what i was looking for and i got far more than i bargained for so thank you so much. And I know that our audience is going to love it as well. Thank you for joining us. And where can we find your website again? At uh, plgdc.org, www.plgdc.org. You could also see uh, our performances on our Patreon page, patreon.com. You just go to patreon.com and look for Peter London Global Dance Company. Uh, we also on Facebook and YouTube, and you can find information there as well. And our upcoming, I just want to say we have our major upcoming event, Celebrating Women. It will be our third. I was raised by five women, my mother and five sisters. <laughs> and you can get away with nothing. They beat you. <laughs> Into discipline. But anyway, um, this is our third annual um, support of women choreographers in the community. Because as you know, well, like in so many things, and I'm speaking to the choir, but in, in, in the dance world, women, and especially women of color, get very little opportunity to have a voice. Mm -hmm. And since, as far as I'm concerned, women are the keeper of the history of the race, I think it has been detrimental uh, for the com our community. 
at large and for the community uh, of Black people that women are not in the theater having a voice as choreographers because it's a very potent and powerful voice that has not been given that opportunity. So I was like, okay. So I worked with the Martha Graham Dance Company. And so here she had all this opportunity and power to speak, but where are our Black women choreographers having the power to speak? So I was like, when I start my company, that was part of the blueprint. I'm a special part of the program is to have a choreographic opportunity for women of color or about women in general because it's I just don't the company is mixed so I have people I have all the women choreograph and so the third annual one is on April 3rd and I have two women of color is going to be choreographing they can also be working with Portia Dunkley an African-American woman uh, she's a, a musician and arranger and so on and so forth and director of Teeny Valen. She's directing the musical uh, arrangement to have them work with two composers to create the music for them. And that will be premiered on April 3rd at the Coral Gables Museum at 4 p.m. followed by a nice big reception with exotic Caribbean food with pilau and the roti and the rum punch and the whole thing. Um, also, with that program, I'll be doing several dances, again, based with music from Nina Simone and Billie Holiday and so on. So it's going to be quite a program on April 3rd at the Coral Gables Museum, celebrating women, artists, women in general. And be, the dance is going to be based on how the pandemic has affected women in terms of their health, their families, and things that were already there, but the pandemic has exacerbated it, you know, work, money, uh, education, and so on and so forth, and trying to take care of their families in the pandemic. So uh, that's what that program is going to be with those women choreographing those dances. Mr. London, thank you so much. We will definitely go. You said Palau. That was a magic word. Bam. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so I much. will be there for sure. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome, and it's so good to meet you, uh, Susie and Maria. And we'll, uh, we'll be in communication. I'll yes. send you the information. Yes, I hope Sounds so. Sounds perfect. Okay, I look thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. All right, ladies. So we've had a full hour, and we will be on next week. So, but before next week rolls around, if people want to see what you're doing, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram at Contemporary Chica. Yeah, that's my handle. <laughs> <laughs> find me at Susie Wong Presents on IG. And you can find me over at Sugarcane Magazine, where you can um, also read a fantastic review that we have on a show that is based out of Jamaica. And I just saw a post by Jerry Saltz, which brings you back to Sugarcane because we did a wonderful um, story on appropriation and just general old copying of other artists on our site. So head over to Sugarcane Mag to read more. We'd really appreciate the support. Um, thank you for joining us and we will be with you next week. Bye guys. Bye everyone. Thank Bye. you so much.